Welcome to At Work in America, sponsored by Paychex. At Work in America digs in behind the headlines and trends to the stories of real people making a difference in the world of work. And now here are your hosts, Steve Bowes and Trish McFarland-Steed. Hi, welcome to the Outwork in America show. My name is Steve Bowes, and I'm joined by Trish McFarland. Trish, how are you today? I'm great, Steve. How are you? I am well. It's great to see you. We, uh, I, I love this topic. It's one we've done a couple of times before. We have a guest returning to the show to talk about neurodiversity in the workplace. Um, it's an important issue. We'll keep talking about it here on the show, and I'm glad to uh, be covering it again today. I'm excited. I am too. We've been really focused on this for at least, well, it's coming up on three years now. So I'm I'm glad we're starting to see some return guests as well to maybe get an update on what's been going on over the past couple of years. So yeah, well, that's good. Uh, before we welcome our guest, Trish, we want to thank our friends at Paychex. This episode of At Work in America is sponsored by Paychex, one of the leading providers of HR, payroll, retirement, and insurance solutions for businesses of all sizes. As the workplace continues to evolve, businesses are being forced to adapt and innovate to meet these challenges. Paychex's fifth annual workforce trend study will help you understand this year's top business challenges and help you set your strategic priorities. You can get the report, the 2023 priorities for business leaders, trends, insights, and ideas for an evolving workplace to learn about the challenges facing businesses like yours and how you don't have to go it alone. You can visit paychex.com slash AWIA to check it out today. And thanks to our friends at Paychex. All right, Trish, let's uh, welcome our guest. Uh, we're, happy, we're happy to welcome back Ed Thompson. Ed is the founder and CEO of Optimize, the leading neuroinclusion training company whose mission is to help organizations embrace and leverage every type of thinker. Ed was born and raised in London and educated at the University of Oxford, and he founded Optimize in 2016, recognizing the urgent need for a greater understanding and appreciation of neurodiversity within the working world. Ed, welcome back to the show. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me back. It's great to have you, Ed. And yeah, since you're coming back to the show, thank you for doing that. Uh, maybe let's do a little quick status or maybe an update. Uh, neurodiversity, as Trish mentioned, we've been talking about it for three years ourselves here on the show. It's been a couple of years since you've been with us. Maybe tell us what's been happening over the last couple of years in this kind of area of, of kind of increasing the inclusion by thinking about neurodiverse individuals in the workplace? Absolutely. It's still a very mixed bag, I think. Some organizations now are multiple years into neuroinclusion programming, including at some scale. And you're seeing employees in those organizations report the benefits and say things like, I can't imagine going to work somewhere that, that wasn't doing this. But of course, I still think that this is a new air quotes enough topic that that's not the norm. And so I think there's a lot of organizations that are still uh, very early in this journey or even right at, at the beginning. I think the biggest change since we spoke a couple of years ago has been an incredibly important one, which is what I call the rise of self-advocacy at work. And while there was data fairly recently that suggested 
90% of neurodivergent employees typically don't disclose at work. What we've seen in organizations that have started to take this seriously is neurodivergent employees find their voice and find their voice together. And that's something that organizations have had for some time. If you think about employee resource groups, these are not new. Many organizations have had resource groups for uh, advancing uh, the uh, interests and rights, and rights of women or people of color and so on. But neurodivergent people didn't necessarily have that representation and that's changed and that's been critical because what it's enabled is not only the the, the voice of neurodivergent employees to be uh, included in solutioning because look these are people who are in the organization who've experienced it every day right they can say what about changing this thing in in, in the hiring program but also for just motivating an organization to, to go on this journey and it's one of those things where look one person says hey can we do this and HR might knock them back but 50 say hey can we do this and it becomes hard to ignore so that's the biggest thing and as that continues to roll I think we'll see more and more organizations you know see this as a, as a matter of urgency you know I'm so glad that you you describe it that way Ed, because as you were talking I'm thinking we're sort of talking about like maybe organizations starting on this journey, right, of hiring um, and and providing support for people who are um, neurodivergent. But you sort of hint at there a little bit like we we already have organizations full of people who are neurodivergent and just not feeling safe or secure enough to disclose. Right. So even if you're if you're thinking like, oh, I have we're not really actively hiring people who are maybe different in some way, but they're already there. Um, could you talk a little bit about maybe more just on sort of some of the reasons people might not be disclosing in your organization? And if you think that's the case, you're listening to this, this podcast, if you think that's the case, what are some of the steps you can take maybe to encourage that or to help influence that? Or just to build off your, your point there, I mean, not, not only do you have neurodivergent thinkers, but there is no such thing as a normal brain. Humans are neurodiverse. <laughs> Sometimes the word neurodiverse is used for neurodivergent, but actually look, any team, uh, any organization is neurodiverse, any candidate pool uh, is neurodiverse. And of course, what's happening because people haven't been educated about neurodiversity is that all of these interactions are taking place uh, whether it's a job interview, uh, whether it's a you know, conversation with your boss, whether it's a meeting. And those interactions are taking place between people with different brains. But most people you know, aren't thinking about neurodiversity. And as a result, they're not you know, practicing neuroinclusion, which I think is an easy then explanation for why people who may be neurodivergent might not choose to disclose. There is uh, I think a fear in uh, missing out in hiring that it might be misjudged and misunderstood. And that's because many people are ignorant of the topic still. And I think what they think they know is often fueled by stereotypes. We've spoken to many neurodivergent professionals who've gone through this process and sometimes disclosed in one organization and not disclosed in another and stories of people disclosing and having a great reaction 
from a manager who maybe they're neurodivergent themselves or you know maybe they just are very inclusive and and, and prepared to have those conversations but other cases where uh, people have been you know shot down marginalized or sort of challenged that they're making it up and so on all sorts of stories of colleagues uh disclosing to co-workers and getting responses like oh you know you can't possibly be autistic because you're female or one person i know in london disclosed to somebody and they said oh I'm, you know i'm so sorry that gives you a shorter life expectancy wow. you know, so that that's the sort of ignorance that i think fuels the the data point i gave earlier which is around nine in ten not disclosing now what we've seen and it's an absolute truism of of any kind of neurodiversity program and program is sort of a grand word but really program can just be you know let's start talking about it and what we found is when an organization starts to talk about it um, and that conversation builds and of course again it's a neurodiverse landscape with neurodivergent workers within it and so the conversation can really ignite uh, you start seeing that change and people start feeling more confident in disclosing when they see the organization say we're not experts but this is a journey we want to go on and you know we value our staff and we value the fact that they might think differently that stuff a lot of people haven't heard and when they start hearing it it's empowering right i think that's why it's so important that people are doing training in this because if i think back you know early in my career or even growing up you're sort of told not to point out or ask about someone who may be different in any way from from you um and if you're raised that way like many people our generation were I think that it's very different to shift gears because you don't want to sometimes hurt someone's feelings by asking a question or asking it the wrong way. And that doesn't, that could go for gender identity, it could go for race, it could go for whatever, right? Religious beliefs. Um, but that is a problem. And I think that's across the globe where in order not to make yourself feel uncomfortable and the other person feel uncomfortable, we often just don't talk about it. And so I love that you're sort of working with organizations to bring this bubble it up, right, to where it's okay to discuss it. And we're going to make mistakes. We're going to say things that probably aren't said the exact right, I'm doing your quotes, right way. But that's okay, because at least you're having that conversation. And I think it's really important. Yeah, I, I, yeah. And to, to build on that, um, people often ask, uh, you know, what can you do right now to to, to bring this topic to, to your work? Um, what can you do to bring it to your team? That's all very much... Uh, topics in in the book i've just released um, what i say to that is talking about it and you can talk about it if you like at the sort of organizational level whoever you are you know whether you're a leader a manager uh, or uh, a, a colleague uh, start engaging with others and say that this is something that you think matters and, and asking other people if they want to be part of that conversation but what you can also do and let's take a manager for example you can talk about this in your team without treading on delicate issues of quote unquote conditions and so on, or, or asking people to disclose. And the way you can do that is by surfacing some of the preferences that you have as a result of your own brain wiring. And so any manager, for example, is going to have their preferred way of giving instructions, uh, their preferred way of strategizing and you could say as a manager look i have a new direct report i'm going to say to them 
here's how I like to give instructions. Here's how I like to communicate. Um, how do you like to receive them? How do you like to communicate? And you just have that conversation. Same thing if you want to strategize with the team. You might say, look, I'm a, a verbal thinker. I'm a very visual. I like standing in front of the whiteboard. I realize not everybody likes that. Mm-hmm. How do you want to contribute to our strategy? And you're going to be surprised that you're going to get different answers and people are going to value that you care about them enough to want to really optimize their work and their contribution by you know, considering those differences. People ask us as a neurodiversity training company, what, you know, what do you do internally to practice what you preach? Mm-hmm. That's the sort of thing that we do. I love that. Yeah, and that sort of leads me uh, to something I wanted to ask you, which is kind of for organizations or HR leaders or business leaders, right, who might be aware of the issue, right? Because we've been talking about neurodiversity at work uh, for a while, right? And and you guys have been working for a while at Optimize. We've we've done, you know, quite a bit on it ourselves. So I think the awareness part, at least certainly for people who are kind of dialed into what's going on in, in the workplace is, is maybe improved a lot, but perhaps not a, a bit of uncertainty about where to begin. And you, you made some great suggestions that about sort of almost the one-to-one kind of interactions, right? To to foster a little bit more inclusion at work. Is there something that when organizations come to you and optimize uh, more programmatically, use the word program a, a couple of minutes ago, uh, to say, look, we want to embrace neurodiversity at work a little more broadly throughout our organization, perhaps we're a big organization, right? What What are some of the ways that can kind of begin in a way that's, you know, sustainable and effective and can, and can take hold in an organization? Yeah, great question. Uh, again, I think we have to accept that most people don't know much about this. And and yes, it may be, uh, and it's great that it is, it may be a, a topic in HR circles that, you know, is, is growing and growing and, 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 and that's clear and, and fantastic. But when we do surveys of learners, we find still 60 to 65% of people will put their hand up and say, don't know much about that. And that's a problem when maybe 20% of people are neurodivergent. And again, every team is neurodiverse. So most people are navigating this reality, but completely oblivious to it. You also have the problem that maybe around 30% of people say, I do know something about that. But often it's because they're, you know, next door neighbors dyslexic or something you know that, that that's probably not enough uh, to really be informed as to, as to how to practice this so we found by far the most important and urgent and effective first step is you've got to you've got to change that for everybody and so in a sense everybody needs something in terms of education and training and we have uh, tools whether it's live sessions whether it's e-learnings very short primers that just pivot people into this reality. Look, I work in a neurodiverse team. I have my own thinking style. So does everybody else. You know, these are things we wish everybody considered anyway, uh, but they don't. And that really is the foundation because once you do that, what you do is you get people in roles like managers or HR or recruiters who realize, gosh, this is actually really important to my work. And I hadn't thought about this before. And they start joining the dots and you get this sort of bottom up um, change happening where people start spotting where they can apply these inclusive behaviours on the ground. They start connecting with each other and saying, 
Let's look at the onboarding process in our department and, and see what we can do. Um, more effective than just imposing it, you know, from the top. But you do have to, again, acknowledge that most people don't know much about it. People don't know how to talk about it. And we have to change that as, as a first step. Yeah, you're so right. I'm sitting here nodding my head because I'm thinking everyone knows someone, whether it's a family member, like you said, next door neighbor, someone who has, um, you know, neurodiversity. But the type of training you're talking about is something that not only helps you at work, it helps you in your life, right? Because often if you have someone in your family, maybe, and you're, you don't even know what they're what their capabilities are because you've never asked them right they've just been treated a certain way their whole life right so even when someone who might have a different type of learning difficulty or something like that in their home they might not be accepted either so it's a really interesting thing to me that what you're what you're talking about and what you're providing is something that will help a person throughout all aspects of their life it's not just for your your team and your work but I would love you to talk a little bit about when, what stories are there when maybe you're a leader, you're wanting to do better, you haven't maybe been through some training yet, but like, what are some of the things that you can be doing as you're interviewing so that you're not making some of the mistakes of asking people appropriately? Um, because people interview in a very different way. Like, so to give them a great experience from that first interaction with your organization what what could they be doing or be thinking about yeah so so i call i call them the the, the boulders in the road with the then there's a chapter on in the book about this but barriers essentially you know what are the friction points that that people find challenging when they when they get hired and as you say uh, it starts from the very first interaction before interviews uh, mm -hmm. we often we've heard from our focus groups people will uh, see an organization talk about diversity and inclusion, but they won't see them talk about neurodiversity. So no examples, no language like we welcome every type of thinker. Easy to add, but they don't see it. So they think, well, you know, does this company get people like me? They probably not. So maybe they don't even apply. Um, if they do apply, uh, they often see job descriptions that uh, contain uh, confusing um, language acronyms and so on that could be confusing often job descriptions don't do a great job of separating the must-haves from the nice-to-haves the more literal thinker might read everything and think gosh well i've got 90 percent of that but not the rest so you know not going to bother applying application forms um, can be uh, confusing poorly formatted timed that can add stress and so on so you know we haven't even got to the interview and and we can be filtering people out and then in filtering itself of course whether the tool uh, isn't necessarily inclusive. People talk a lot about some issues with psychometric tests. Many older neurodivergent people may have a more patchy resume as well for reasons outside their control, working at uninclusive uh, employers, and you know, that can be punished. So all of that can happen before you even get to interviews. And then of course, interviews, uh, which are often, I think, overweighted in the assessment process. If we think about what interviews really are, they are to some extent uh, a test of social performance. Often they're a significant part of an assessment where the skills of an interview, if you like, are not particularly part of part of the job. So I think they can be overweighted. And then within them, you often have, again, either the 
the 90% or the, sorry, the 60% or the 30% that I mentioned earlier, people who either don't know anything about this or think they know a bit, but might not know as much as they think, conducting interviews and asking confusing questions. Lots of interviewers asking questions at the same time, uh, expecting a certain body language, expecting a certain amount of eye contact, expecting a certain tone of enthusiasm. Spoke to somebody the other day who said he just has a sort of flat affect in the way that he talks. It's just the way that, you know, his 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 brain works. Um, he said he constantly gets asked, you know, do you really want the job? And he says, well, look, why would I be here for the fourth interview? Yes, I want the job, but it's just the way that I present. And I think people can get you know punished for that. Some people aren't very good at closing their thought and can get punished for that. So. All of these barriers, and you know, I've tried to contextualise interviews within them, uh, can be reasons why we can unintentionally uh, exclude people who think differently. Yeah, and I think that really underscores uh, the education and awareness issue that you talked about a couple of minutes ago, where that 60, say, to 65%, let's lump that into, say, folks who are organising these types of interviews or the hiring managers who are responsible for making these decisions. If that high a percentage of these folks are really just not that dialed into these issues. Yeah, that it can be pretty convenient and or easy to fall into those conclusions, right? Whether it's the eye contact, the lack of enthusiasm, the just the individuals presenting themselves in a way that seems just a little bit different than everybody else I've hired before who's worked out really well on the team, right? And we we start falling into those traps because it's easy to as people, right, to fall into that trap, right? To say, oh, this person... I can see this person fitting in with all the other people who are already here, right? Yeah, and I can I give you an example right now, which speaks to what we just talked about, which is why everybody needs to know something about this. So one of the folks interviewed in the book, and the book has a lot of stories of neurodivergent professionals and, and, and their experiences. Um, very successful in a professional services firm. Uh, this guy, very creative. Uh, really a, a top performer, but somebody who, who didn't feel he could disclose, uh, who felt his path to progression uh, was blocked, and who decided to look elsewhere. And he decided to chance his arm in a way with disclosing when he went to his interviews to think, well, let's see, no, no, let's see how people react. And he went to interview at a bank that was extremely early in their neurodiversity journey. But everybody had had something, right? So everybody mm -hmm. who interviewed him had taken a half an hour primer on just what is this? Why does it matter that we provide it? And so when he disclosed, he got a positive and constructive and relaxed response. You know, tell us what you needed to be successful in the past. You know, what would what do managers need to know to, to, to help you be, be comfortable? Um, had a productive conversation, got hired, and is doing extremely well. So that's how it can change. And and nothing, you know, particularly profound happened other than we just saw that shift. You know, I was thinking, and, and maybe you have information on this, if I just look, think back through my career, one of the things when I was studying for my master's in HR management was adult learning principles. And we were learning about how, if you're giving a training to a group of adults who all learn in very different ways, that you can do things to sort of help them 
learn the material, absorb it better, retain it longer, whatever that the case may be. It made me think of when, when you were talking about asking people what their communication preferences are. Have you done any research around learning preferences once you have or once you know that someone has disclosed? Um, what can you do from a learning perspective? Um, can you provide them, you know, uh, I'm thinking like if you're if you're teaching a session and you maybe give put Play-Doh on the tables, right? So as people are learning, they're working with their hands or maybe if you're t teaching someone how to do something, they actually have the components of that something in front of them. So they're actually doing it along with you. What have, what have you found in your experience with actually helping people who are neurodivergent learn better in your organization? Yeah, it's a great, it's a great question. And actually, because this is such a muddy reality, human brains, you know, again, everybody thinks differently. A lot of the time people don't want to tell you, a lot of the time people haven't necessarily had a, a diagnosis. Um, we really preach universal design as being the starting point. Universal design meaning how do we make an effort to design environments, processes, and so on, whatever it is, off the bat, to be inclusive for everybody. Now, universal design came from architecture and people thinking about how do we create spaces that are inclusive for everybody. But the next big area that universal design got traction in is was learning. And that's the whole field, universal design for learning. And we have a module in our training about learning and development, which takes those principles, which are actually, you know, pretty well formed now, which, you know, Trish talks all the things you, you mentioned, giving people information in different ways, in clear formats, up front, setting expectations, thinking about the physical environment as well. There's a whole list of things you can do, and you can apply that same approach of universal design to giving instructions or meetings or, you know, the application process, right? And so on. And so, again, we think of universal design, you start there, and then where that will always leave little crevices where somebody, because of their brain wiring and because of their environment, might have a particular need or request that our best efforts at universal design haven't addressed. You know, we call that space the space for person centered support. So, somebody comes to you and says, Hey, Trish, you know, you're my manager. Actually, I'm dyslexic and I find the formatting of the spreadsheet we all use a little challenging. You know, can we tweak that? And to, we want you to be in a position to have a conversation there and not to be intimidated, not to say, oh, you're dyslexic. I had a dyslexic employee five years ago and they wanted this software. So, you know, I'll go and get it for you. <laughs> but, you know, to, to let the person really be the master of their own journey and and to, you know, and to support them with with what they need and that people i think get concerned when they when they understand what a a nuanced reality this all is you know we don't have the clear lines you know if we're talking about veterans in the workplace i mean look you either served in iraq or you didn't mm -hmm. pretty clear this is a lot more muddy but we can address it through universal design as you said learning everything else and then person-centered support well, I think the big takeaway there is really, like you said, it's about asking the questions and not assuming that you know the solution for that individual, right? And so maybe that's the hard part, right? If you're sitting at work and you're thinking, oh, what can I do to fix something for someone? 
you're probably too far down the path. It's back up. Just ask the question, what do you need? You yeah, might be surprised I mean, how easy it is and how inexpensive it is to provide a solution for that person. Totally. I always think of the uh, prospect about company about to work with us who said, and it was partly they were a bit confused because they wanted to be more neuroinclusive. And they said they'd got three dyslexic employees in a room and said, right, what do you need? And of course, they meant you plural, but they got three different answers. <laughs> <laughs> And so then they're thinking, gosh, this is a bit more complicated than we thought. But actually, it's not complicated. If you if you treat each of those employees as an individual with their own experience shaped by their brain wiring, somebody we're paying a lot of money to, we want to get the best results from, just a little bit of careful management to, to, to make sure that that's the case, not that difficult. And, and it's interesting, you look at the, and we and I researched this for the book, there are organisations that hire mostly neurodivergent talent it consultancies for example really interesting to see what they do and, and how we can learn from that and that's one of the things that they will preach is that attentiveness to the individual experience it's not that hard it's not that hard but actually they'll really make sure people are comfortable and they'll keep going back You've got what you need do you feel supported you know it just maybe we all know that should be the case but it doesn't it gets dropped and for some people, that really matters. And Ed, because it's so easy, whether it's talking about issues around neurodiversity or uh, flexible work schedules or you name it, right? Like it's so easy to default back to, oh, this is hard to think of people as individual people with individual goals, needs, learning styles, patterns of thinking. Let's just make one rule. Everybody come to the office Monday, Wednesday, Friday, nine to five, right? I, I I spend way too much time on that that nonsense in the last couple of years <laughs> because I think that's part of, part of why it happens though, right? We don't want to think about the person who moved away 200 miles away during the pandemic, but they're a great you know software coder or whatever their job is, right? And we should really keep that person at all costs. No, you know we must drag them in. So thinking of people as individual people really. Uh, it can solve a lot of problems probably, but certainly, yeah, you've, you've described really uh, eloquently how it can really help organizations here in neurodiversity. Um, Ed, you've mentioned the book a couple of times, and it's my fault for not sort of setting that up at the beginning of the show. The new book is called A Hidden Force, Unlocking the Potential of Neurodiversity at Work. I read a little bit about the backstory of the book, maybe a little bit of the inspiration for the book. Kind of you were, it's in the pandemic, you're out there getting outside, maybe clearing your head and you thought maybe maybe a book. You know, you've been working on neurodiversity for a while at that point. I'd love for you to tell us a little bit more about the inspiration for the book and, and, and the book itself and, and why you're so excited about it. Yeah, I was talking to a multi best-selling author the other day. She said there are two types of books type of book that you have to really craft and conceive and, and, and work on and the type of book that's just going to come tumbling out of you at some point and you, you can't really help it and this was very much the latter uh, the challenge for me was having a day job running the company so it's really just a question mm -hmm. of when and it was at the beginning of the covid lockdowns when i said to my wife with the world seemingly on hold maybe I'll have time to, to start that book that, uh, that I've been talking about. And I had a really a very clear uh, vision for it, having had a number of realizations and experiences that I just felt 
compelled um, to share. Partly because although I had a traumatic brain injury uh, myself some years ago, not that long ago, I was also ignorant of of all of this stuff. You know, so I went through these realizations. Firstly, the realization of just how many people are neurodivergent, how easy it is for people, very talented people, to miss out on meaningful careers and for businesses to miss out on their skills. Realizing as well that neurodiversity means everybody, technically. So we have this fact that, you know, people are organizations' most expensive asset. The number one tool they're all bringing to work every day is their brain, and we're just not thinking about that. And that seemed you know, pretty profound to me. Seeing the energy of some of the early programs, the early conferences, the response from the community, and the response to our training, we continue to see responses, feedback that are quite emotional. People saying things like, I'm in tears because what you're saying is resonating so much. I'm so pleased that you know, we're finally doing training like this. And also a response from, say, managers who might be neurotypical saying, I was a cynic. I didn't know what this had to do with me. And actually, this is the best thing I've heard in leadership in 10 years. And you know, I, I, I did think you probably don't get that sort of response if you're training people in anti-bribery or you know health and safety or, or, or whatever this is really quite fantastic and 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 I you know I want to share it I realized and as I've mentioned several times in the interview most people don't know much about this I'm in a world where companies are are building their programs um, and people are talking about it and people are talking about it more but lots of people you know are, are, are fairly new to it so really the book set out to say right what is this? Why does it matter? Why are we all talking about it now? Uh, and then what can you do to take this to your individual work today? And then what can you do to take it to your team or, or organization? Yeah, thank you for sharing that. I think that one of the takeaways I'll have from this conversation is that we may consider ourselves neurotypical. And if we really think about it and what our preferences are, we might find that we also would benefit from certain different ways of learning, different ways of consuming information. I mean, if you just look around, you know, your workplace, people use different methods for taking notes, uh, right? Some's audio, some's writing with a pencil, some's writing with a pen, some's on computer, right? So we see, we see evidence of this every day. So this to me is really just sort of amping that up to the next level of being um, inclusive by just asking that question. And I think you might be surprised, you, you might help yourself as well. You know, um, I don't know if you would agree or disagree with that, but that's sort no, of my I takeaway. I, I, several thoughts. I think one of the very pleasant surprises of early neurodiversity programs was the response from everybody mm -hmm. and everybody saying this is good for everybody, right? Yeah. And And I don't think people expected that. And one of the things we found is that everybody, as you say, Trish, everybody has these preferences and you take a show of hands in a room and you say, right, who prefers communication channel A, B, C, D, E, F? Mm -hmm. You get different responses. That's neurodiversity. So is, you know, when people like to work and so on, to some extent, of course, with the rest of their circumstances uh, playing in. What we found as well, though, is that 
for neurodivergent people, those preferences can be particularly acute. And where a neurotypical might say, well, look, I would love my manager to let me work in that particular way, but I can sort of muddle through. A neurodivergent person might say, actually, I'm fantastic if I can organize my work the way I want to, but if I can't, I'm stuck. Right. Absolutely, this is good for everybody. I think that's a really important takeaway. This is not disability inclusion for a tiny niche population. This is the reality, waking up to the reality that we all have a different brain and embracing that and seeing what happens when we do. Yeah. And I think that's a great way to kind of summarize uh, much of what we've been talking about today and even the last time you were with us. And uh, I I think it's a great kind of message to send out to the audience as well. We'd certainly encourage them to uh, learn more about, of course, what Optimize is doing. Uh, And of course, uh, check out the new book as well. Connect with Ed and the team at Optimize. Uh, This is really important stuff. We care about it a lot here on the show. We're so glad to see you again and so happy that you're able to come back and join us today as well. And I'm glad you mentioned, by the way, just as a complete aside, you mentioned anti-bribery training. Because we're always, I have like, (laughs) everybody's got like five corporate stories, right? They love to tell over and over again. And one of mine is about anti-bribery training, except at the time I worked for this massive international conglomerate. I won't say who it was, but we didn't call it bribery. Our policy on bribery, Trish, you know what we called it? What do you call it? We called it facilitative payments. That was our euphemism for bribery back in the day. And I did learn about it and it was oh, bad goodness. apparently to do. So um it's still right. around. I feel like yeah, that's I the know. worst possible training because anybody involved in bribery is gonna say, No, 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 don't worry, it's not bribery, it's just a facilitative payment. And then the accomplice right, right. is gonna say, Got it, no problem. Do you think that was the context? Training. Yeah, I think that was the context. It was bribery, no, facilitative payments, okay. I think no that problem. Was, yeah. that's how I walked out wow. of that room. But, yeah. uh, all right. So we'll put some links in the show notes to optimize as well as uh, you can learn more about the book. You can get it there. If, if there's anywhere physically in the real world, you can get a book. That would be cool too. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going out today later. I will look around and see if I can find one Ed. And if I do, I'll take a photo and send it to you like a, a real physical one out in the, in the real world, if that's such a thing. But um, we want to thank Ed, of course, for joining us. And it's great to see you again. Great to be here. Thank you both. Right. And All come right. back for the next book. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. See you in Trish about is like, Trish, your interview to become the book agent, I think. To, I'm going to be his book agent. I'm going to, I'll travel, whatever's needed. Yeah, I'm here. Absolutely. I'm here well, for him. I'm, I'm <laughs> Great really, stuff. really excited to see people, you know, engage with, with this one and, uh, you know, can't, can't wait to see more and more people um, you know, do that and, and hopefully spread the word. Yeah. yeah, great stuff. All right, Ed Thompson from Optimize. Thanks again. Uh, thanks to our friends at Paychex, of course. And thanks, Trish. Good to see you again as well. Uh, that's it for today's uh, show. Uh, we remind everybody to check out hrhappyhour.net for all the show archives. Uh, subscribe, tell a friend, and all that. So my name's Steve Bowes. Great to see uh, you, Ed. Thanks, Trish. And uh, we'll see you next time. And bye for now.